following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. So today is Palm Sunday, and in nearly every Western Christian church uh, in the world today, and I say that because the Eastern Church marks their calendar differently, so this isn't Palm Sunday for them, I don't think. But in nearly every Western Christian church today, liturgical ones and non-liturgical ones, um, Roman Catholic ones and Baptist ones and Pentecostal ones and artisan ones, uh, we are all coming around this same story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and trying to find some meaning in that story. And in various churches around the world, you, you would hear references to Old Testament passages that seem prophetic uh, in the light of the gospel story that we heard read earlier. Um, there will be explanations about how this particular entrance into Jerusalem uh, that Jesus chose to do was... Uh, not in line with what many of his followers wanted. You've probably heard some version of this sermon if you've been here long enough to have more than one Palm Sunday, because I talk about this from time to time. His followers wanted to make him a conquering king. Remember, they were all Jewish, and they were in Roman occupation, and they really, really wanted Jesus to be this promised king. Uh, Their understanding of the promise was that the king would overthrow the oppressive government of Rome. And that's not really what ended up happening with Jesus. You might hear in various Western Christian churches around the world today a contrast drawn between the way that this particular crowd, we'll call them a worship crowd, responded to Jesus over and against the way a a different crowd responded to him just a few short days later, shouting that they wanted him to be crucified. And you hear lots of talk about how um, this crowd didn't understand things, and they were just kind of going with groupthink and crowd mentality, herd mentality, uh, and they did the same thing with the opposite message, shouting crucify him later. And in fact, that's probably the most common thing that you hear, is criticisms of crowds. That's the most, that's like, that is just a single up the middle for a pastor (laughs) on Palm Sunday, right? That's, a, that's just, there's really no effort. <laughs> that's the easiest path of least resistance, and I think it's actually a very good and important sermon to hear. I've preached it myself probably more than once. Crowds get a bad rap on Palm Sunday. Um, and often, uh, for me at least, I don't know how many, other, how many places you've heard this, this particular reading, but when you start talking about the crowd, I always love to recite um, and read G.K. Chesterton's poem about the donkey. Can I do that now? Hey, kids, what sound does a donkey make? That was a really pathetic donkey sound. Children of Artisan Church, what sound does a donkey make? Yeah. Are donkeys pretty animals? No, they're kind of ugly, aren't they? Are donkeys like, do they make a pretty sound that we would love to hear? No. So, I want you to think about that donkey for a second. I'm going to read this poem, which is about a donkey, okay? Here it is. All right. All right, now, kids, make sure you can listen to this, because the grown-ups, I think, want to hear this. Grown-ups like poetry, especially artsy-fartsy grown-ups like at Artisan. 
When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth, of ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me, I am dumb. I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. Isn't that a beautiful poem? I love that poem. I always post that on Facebook every Palm Sunday. You probably saw it if you're friends with me on Facebook. Even the donkey calls the crowd a fool, (laughs) a group of fools, right? They're caught up in the excitement of the moment. They don't understand what Jesus intends to do in Jerusalem. They're fickle and inconstant. You know, as a matter of fact, the crowds that tend to follow Jesus around, they don't tend to get many gold stars anywhere in the Gospels. It's not just this story. The crowd always seems to miss the point. It's not just the religious leaders who miss the point. It's the disciples who are honestly interested in following Jesus and learning what he has to say who continually miss the point. I love to tell the story about in John 6 how after he's, uh, Jesus has performed this wonderful miracle of the feeding of 5,000 people, he has all these thousands of people, as you can imagine, are um, awestruck and they start to follow him around and he has the biggest crowd he's ever had. And then he starts talking with this very disturbing language about how if they don't want to eat his flesh and drink his blood, then they can't have any place in the kingdom. And they all just sort of back slowly away. (laughs) And pretty soon it's just the original 12, right? Right? And what what does Jesus say? Uh, Are you going to leave too? And what do they answer? Where would we go? (laughs) You have the words of life. But there seems to be something about gatherings of groups of people together around Jesus that gets them off track. And that's probably just as true, if we're being honest, today as it was in the first century. How many of you, uh, if you'd like to show hands, you can, but you don't have to. This may be embarrassing. How many of you have ever been part of a large crowd who were worshiping and praising God, and then maybe at some point, either in that moment or in reflecting on it later, you realize that, Something was maybe a few degrees off in that, in that place, right? I see a lot of these types of hands going up, right? I wonder if there's something inherently dangerous to spiritual understanding in a crowd mentality. On one hand, I agree when John Wesley says no one can be a Christian alone. I think that's absolutely true. But I sometimes wonder if... Um, if there's too many people, if you get caught up in this wave of things that that takes takes your focus away from what what God really might want to be doing. But at the same time, I also wonder, I also, also wonder if sometimes we're a little too hard on crowds of worshipers. Maybe we're a little bit too critical of this crowd, for example, that wave their palm leaves. Okay, kids, wave your palm leaves again. Get them out real quick. And they waved them, and what did they say? Shout it out. That's right. (laughs) Hosanna, Hosanna. 
Okay, now put them back under your chairs. Maybe we're a little too, too critical of this crowd. Like I said, it's kind of an easy sermon to preach. So what I want to do is explore this concept a little bit. Now, usually, this hasn't been true the past couple of times, but usually on the fifth Sunday of the month, we do um, a different way of engaging with the Word and with our faith than to hear a sermon. Um, Usually we hear people from the congregation sharing stories about um, their own path of faith, rather than just me preaching a text or something like that. So what I want to do right now is actually give us a few minutes in community with each other. Um, people who are willing to share, even just briefly, this, the answer to this question um, and the story about this event in your life. What was the time in your life when it, you were in the biggest worship crowd that you'd ever been in? Right? Now, you don't have to uh, offer any analysis of that experience. But you can if you want to, especially if it's one of those ones I was just describing a minute ago where looking back, you feel a little bit weird about it, All right? Now, that may be uh, too much self-disclosure, and it's okay if you don't want to go into that. Um, but have you, have you ever been part of a big, giant worship crowd? What was that like? I'd like to hear from maybe three or four people about what that was like. And uh, we don't have, we're going to send a microphone around or anything, so just shout it out um, right where you are. Oh, yeah. Okay. So uh, I was with you until breakfast. Um, so Shane's talking about the time when he saw the Newsboys performing at Kingdom Bound, Bound in 2006, and they sang a song about breakfast. Oh, that's the song. They don't serve breakfast in hell. Okay. So you were into this, like all the kids at this festival, oh, hands raised, I like it, I like it. And then maybe later you thought, that's kind of a mean song, right? Is that fair to say? Okay. <laughs> Anybody else ever been to a Newsboys concert? <laughs> yeah, I see you out there. I've been to a Newsboys concert. Several. I'm uh, Just the one for me, but it was preceded and followed by a very shouty sermon from Josh McDowell, so I think that counts... <laughs> That counts as more than one. Uh, yes, Anna. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Creation Festival, uh, maybe not as mainstream as the Kingdom Bound Festival. That's a little bit more. Yeah. Camping and dirty hippies, yeah, who love Jesus. Yep, lots of bands, lots of speakers, lots of singing, and did, did, was there any of this going on? Lots of that, yeah? Okay. I, I don't mean to make fun of people who do this, by the way. That's not really where I'm going, but um, if you're making fun of yourself for doing this in a past experience, I can't stop you from doing that. Yeah, so, yeah. No, not yourself. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I was totally into and it was great until like the pastor stopped and said, Okay, this is totally impromptu, but everybody starts speaking in tongues right now. Okay. Because you don't feel the spirit. I'm like, okay. Wow, okay. 
Interesting. Interesting. So at this particular conference, um, everything was great. You were a new Christian, new believer, and everything was great until the, the speaker um, had an unplanned excursion into everybody speak in tongues land. Okay. Yeah. That can be, uh, that must have felt sort of strange. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Courtney. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Wow, so a speaker being booed for suggesting that we show compassion to members of the LGBT community. That, that would be a little awkward. Yeah. Anybody else have a story? These are fun to share, aren't they? Yeah, Kristen. Yeah, yeah. So Christian's talking about being at Urbana, which is an intervarsity conference, 20,000 people singing and milling around, and it was awesome, right? Um, so of course there's times when we're in a crowd and it's not weird or creepy. It doesn't have to be. That's great. Thank you. Ken, did you have a story too? Okay. Yeah. Uh, same, same conference? Well, you don't have to put numbers on it. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, cool. Five figures, <laughs> tens of thousands of people worshiping together. That can be a pretty powerful thing. Now, I, I you, you probably would have guessed this about me already, but I have been to a Promise Keepers conference, um, and... I would not go to one now. I, I think there's some problematic theology that is sometimes expressed at those conferences. But the one that I went to was a time of really incredible worship. And there's something about being in a large crowd of people that, for me, was very freeing. I'm a reserved worshiper. I, I don't tend to do this, usually. But I think I did at that conference. I just felt like I was free to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I've, I've had some of those positive experiences in a big crowd as well. Anybody else just dying to tell your story? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, come on. <laughs> so, Shane, has anybody else ever been to a Billy Graham crusade? I mean, a legitimately amazing preacher, right? And a giant of, of American Christianity. Um, so your memory of that, Shane, was how long it took to wait on the bus for the people who had, had come forward to give their lives to Christ. Yeah. How nice of you to be sensitive and patient with them about that. <laughs> I mean, I'm just teasing you. I, uh, yeah, Rich. Wow, uh, the Carrier Dome? Billy Graham at the Carrier Dome. By the way, how's Syracuse doing in the tournament this year? 
Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> we were all turning our attention to RIT hockey, but... Um, at the Carrier Dome, did the wave in both decks. Cool. I don't like the wave at sporting events, but at a, at a Billy Graham crusade, that would probably be pretty sweet. Yeah, Cheryl. Last one, Cheryl. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Cheryl's saying she's been to lots of different Christian conferences and concerts and camps. And there, there's very often, and many of you will have, have had this experience if you grew up going to this kind of thing or if you've gone to them in your adult life, where you have what she described as a spiritual high. Anybody familiar with that phrase, a spiritual high? Ever been to an event where you had this very high mountaintop type spiritual experience? And then a day or two later, the shine kind of wears off and you begin to wonder, is that good for my spiritual health to have that giant spike? What do I do now? I don't feel that way anymore. What does that mean about my faith if I have lost the feeling of, of having that kind of palm-waving experience, right? It's almost like a, a kind of a, a spiritual hangover, like what did I do last night kind of thing, right? It's an easy move to be cynical and sort of too cool as we look back on those memories. It's, it's a kind of a cheap shot, I think. Not only at the crowd, but at ourselves when we look back at those things and go, man, that was so weird, right? Now, it may have been weird. Certainly, uh, some of the stories you told were of occasions where something inappropriate really happened. And you have to deal with that, and it's appropriate to be critical of that. But I think, I'm going to speak purely for myself, and I suspect that many of you will come along with me down this little road. I think it's just too easy to say, well, man, that was so lame. Remember when we did that thing that was just so dorky? We had our hands in the air. I think we actually waved them like we didn't care. I think it's sort of a sibling response to that which we have about this crowd on Palm Sunday that says, they were waving those palm branches in the air, they were putting their coats down, they were in this groupthink, crowd-herd mentality, and they didn't even know what Jesus was about. If only they knew he was going to his violent death within a week. They wouldn't have been screaming and waving and having such a great time. They were just there because it was what the whole town was doing, Right? We start to criticize this crowd, and I think we then reapply that to ourselves in similar situations and say, well, we were just going along with what the youth group was doing. We were new believers. We didn't know what was going on. We, uh, we were so naive. We, didn't, we had never experienced suffering and heartbreak, and our faith wasn't real back then. Is this familiar to any of you? I have said that kind of thing about myself so many times. And what happened, I'm not that old, 
But what happened at a certain point was I realized, as I got old enough, that it's never going to stop being like that. There's never going to be a time when you arrive, and from that point on, everything you do in your spiritual life makes perfect sense, and you'll never be embarrassed of it. There's never going to be a moment when your theological understanding is complete so that you'd never have to look back anymore and say, man, I was so misguided. I was so naive. What I have learned in my very brief, young adult life is that that never stops. And so here's what I want to say to us in in, in closing is that I think we should forgive the worship crowds. I think we should forgive the first century crowd for misunderstanding what Jesus was about. I think we should forgive the crowds that we've been part of, whether they were just kind of like weird or whether they were really, truly offensive and and potentially harmful. I think we should extend forgiveness to those crowds. And most of all, I think we should extend forgiveness to ourselves for being part of something that maybe we wouldn't choose to be part of again if we had it to do over again. Because one of the problems that we've identified with these crowds is that that they worshipped too freely and with a lack of theological depth or insight or nuance. But wouldn't it be nice sometimes if we could worship a little more freely now? I'm a reserved kind of person and sometimes I feel like I just need to break out of that. I'm just too closed. And if I could just get over myself for three minutes during this song and put my hands in the air, if that's what I feel like my, my spirit and body want me to do, maybe I would come to some kind of spiritual epiphany that would help me get over myself in the long term. It's not fair to say to a crowd they lack theological depth and therefore it's invalid. And the reason it's not fair is because we are not saved by our theological depth. That should not be a controversial statement, but I think maybe it is. We are, let me say it this way, and maybe it will be even more controversial, but I still don't think it should be. We are not saved by getting it all right about Jesus. Whoa, 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 we're saved by faith. You have to understand what Jesus did and accept that for yourself. That's how you're saved. Well, that's not what faith means. <laughs> that's not what being saved by faith means, and that's not what it means in contrast specifically to being saved by works. We all know we're not saved by our works, right? We're saved by our faith. There's nothing you can do to make Jesus save you except believe in him. But I'm going to suggest to you that sometimes that expectation on ourselves is just another version of works righteousness painted to look like faith. Because if you want to insist that you have to have everything correct about Jesus and that's your definition of faith, I am here to tell you that that is work. That is you trying to gin up something that wasn't present before, perhaps, so that you will be saved and you can say that you were saved by faith. It is work. It is works righteousness to say that you have to get everything right, every theology precise before you can truly be saved by faith because that's what faith is after all. Right? 
We're not saved by being right about Jesus. We are saved by trusting Jesus. And here's the kicker. Often, especially early on in our our journey of trust, that trust in Jesus is expressed in imperfect ways. I can think back to camp sermons when I was in junior high and high school where I had a spiritual experience, a mountaintop experience, a spiritual high. And later I came to think that was, I didn't even know what I was getting into. Who cares? I was trusting Jesus in that moment. I was taking one more step of trust in him. My theology was a little screwy. The, the context was very screwy. But I was trusting Jesus. We are not saved by our theological depth or accurate doctrine. Even if the doctrine is about Jesus, we are saved by trusting him. We are saved by saying, I've got nothing to offer. All I can do is trust. That is the great salvific move. Because when you say you have nothing to offer and you step into it, that's when he truly offers you everything and you can truly kind of start to receive it. And it will take you the rest of your life to be filled with this grace and this trust. And it's going to be two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, four steps back, five steps forward, ten steps back, four steps back, one more step forward. It just is non-linear. The life of faith is the life of trust. The labor of God, as I said a week or two ago, is to trust in the, the one that he sent, is to trust in the Son. That is the only work you need to be concerned with, not with getting it all right, not with correcting the crowds around you, not with rejecting past spiritual experiences that weren't 100% perfect. Because our trust in Jesus is expressed in imperfect ways. Our trust in Jesus is expressed in imperfect ways, and that will always, always be true. Let's pray. Jesus, we look at this crowd and we think, are we part of it or aren't we? Do they have it right? Do they have it wrong? Help us to understand that those questions are not always the right ones to ask. Help us to place our trust in you unabashedly, unreservedly, Help us to, to let go of our desire to be in control, to be cool, to be correct, to be deep, to be wise. And help us to replace all of those desires with the desire simply to trust you and to follow you wherever you lead. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, Uh, First of all, I want to say thank you to the kids. Can you say thank you to the kids? They did an awesome job. When you guys sing and wave your palm leaves, that helps all the stodgy, boring old grown-ups begin to break loose from their boringness. So thank you. And thank you for being such, doing such a good job staying quiet and listening and all that stuff. I know that's hard to do. And I know I'm not as much fun as the teachers at the other end of the building. But you'll get to go back there next week, I promise. So I want to invite all of you now who are seeking to trust Jesus, who are saying, I don't have it right. I don't know a single thing. (laughs) I just trust you, Jesus. Now is the time for you to, to make that trust physical. 
I'm going to ask the musicians to come up here. We're going to sing uh, a couple more songs together. And while we're doing that, the communion table is open for all who would seek to follow him. You can take his, his body, represented by this bread, dip it in the blood, represented by the juice and the wine. Receive it into your body as food for your souls. And we will sing and worship God together. The prayer team will be here. If somebody would like to have personalized prayer, you can come and receive that now. Um, But our table is open. Let's worship him together more. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.